Welcome to Kopi Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist, coming to you from the sidelines of the 2022 Singapore FinTech Festival. I'm honored to introduce our guest, Dr. Stuart Haber. As a cryptographer at Belcor in 1990, Dr. Haber co-invented the blockchain technique for ensuring the integrity of digital records. He was co-founder with Scott Stornetta of Surety, which was spun off from Belcor in 1993. Surety offered digital timestamping services and was the first commercial deployment of a blockchain. Dr. Haber's work in cryptographic timestamping was later adopted by Shatoshi Nakamoto as a basic mechanism for data integrity in Bitcoin. Stuart Haber, welcome to Kopi Time. My pleasure to be here. Uh, it's great to have you. If you permit me, let's travel back in time. Okay. All the way back to the early 1990s. Your paper with Scott Stronetta, how to timestamp a digital document. What problem and motivation drove the work? And what use cases did you have in mind way back then? You summarized the problem very well in the pleasant introduction you just gave. Scott Stranetta and I were young researchers, well, 30 years ago, so 30 years younger than we both are now, at Bellcore, Bell Communications Research, which at that time was the only recently established Bell Labs for the local phone companies, which had recently been broken up by a, a big antitrust settlement. Ma Bell, That's as, right. as those of a certain age still say. And we had ridiculous research freedom. I'd been there a couple of years working as a research cryptographer, and Scott Stronetta had just been hired. He went around meeting people, and we hit it off nicely. And he said, I've got a problem for you, and I think cryptography might help us solve it. Are you interested? I said, well, sure, tell me. Remember, this is 89. The internet certainly existed. You know, I, I lived in email and so on, but the World Wide Web was still in the future. That's right. And I won't reminisce about what, what we did that would now count as web crawling <laughs> or web searching. Um, in any case, it certainly hadn't happened yet, but the world was clearly moving online. Computer files are famously easy to manipulate and change. And we were worried about the integrity of all the world's records. I mean, history. I don't remember whether we commonly use this historical analogy then, but the, the burning of the Library of Alexandria That's right. um, was destruction of records. But uh, we were worried about all the world's records. Financial records technical records, I mean, scientific and technical lab notebooks, but, you know, email messages. I send you a message saying, let's have lunch at that deli tomorrow at two. And um, that's a message. And you want to be sure, if we know each other, that it came from me and so on. And hasn't been changed. Especially if there's an argument years later about whether we had lunch that day. That's where the timestamp comes in. Yes. So timestamping is a bit of a misleading description because for most records, the exact microsecond of timestamping matters considerably less than an assurance that the record has not changed right. since then. In a world of algorithms and strings of bits, the only way to ensure the integrity of records at all if, I mean, you just stop and think about it, is that there has to be a procedure for, as it were, registering a record. 
And a digital record is not something like this business card you just gave me that I can write something on or stamp. It's uh, just a string of bits. So the result of the registration procedure has to be a registration receipt of some kind, a bit string, and that receipt is what we called back then a timestamp certificate. And then there are also the registration and the receipts would be completely useless without a procedure to verify them. So here's this email message. Let's have lunch at the deli on Tuesday. And what's supposed to be the timestamp certificate for exactly this string of bits, there has to be a way to check it efficiently, quickly. And that verification procedure would also be fairly useless if it were easy to forge things. So uh, I'm so curious about that entire process of thinking about those things back in the late 80s and, and thinking about digital integrity and the sanctity of records. Now, today, when we look back and we say, well, you know, birth records or death records that sit in registry offices around the world, we see them as irrevocable records pieces of paper, if you will. But now, of course, there's a digital element to that. But the idea these days is that, you know, for developing countries where you don't have that well-authenticated, well-attested set of paper records, the digital one allows you to sort of leapfrog into that. Did you have that sort of inclusion arguments in mind or were you trying to solve a problem for the first world at that time? Oh, no, no. I exchanged email with with scientists... um, not in first world countries, just talking about things. And Stornetta and I were ambitious. We wanted to be able to ensure the integrity of all the world's records. And we worried about the longevity of our assurances of integrity. And furthermore, just making the problem harder, we wanted to be able to do this without relying on a single central entity, a trusted authority You just gave the example of birth certificates. At least in the U.S., we call it the birth record. The official birth record is called a birth certificate. There's an official way to get one in order, in fact, just to renew my passport to come here. Last week, I, I needed to go to the right government office in New York City, where I was born and still happily live, and get a new copy of my birth certificate. An original, they called it. Yeah, I have to deal with that stuff too, the one with the little watermark in them. Yes. Uh, Okay, so 1991, the paper comes out, and I'm sure you go around presenting it, and it's in publication form. What was the initial reception, both in the academic community as well as, say, the private sector? The paper publication date that you see in the nice academic-style reference in the Satoshi White Paper was the journal version of our paper in 91. We presented it at a conference called Crypto, back when crypto meant cryptography or cryptology, and nobody was going to pronounce the syllables cryptocurrency for some decades on. So by the summer of 1991, we had the complete solution that Satoshi adapted directly. We didn't call collections of records blocks, but we had what in current terminology is blocks of what I described a moment ago as registration requests and built a hash-linked chain of blocks. And we had experimental software running in October 1991. At first, it was just used by people around the lab who had heard us uh, talking about the project. And jumping ahead a couple of years, 
As it turned out, Bell Communications Research allowed Scott and me to spin off a, a new enterprise called Surety that offered time-stepping services. We tried to interest financial institutions. We actually got some customers for scientific and engineering lab notebooks. But the business, for various reasons, was not wildly successful. You were just way, way ahead of time. Okay. The Shatoshi paper comes out. We get a little more than a decade and a half between your concept paper and no major practical application or use case in the fintech world. We certainly talked to people at banks, but we got no, That's right. we got no, no takers. Right. And then this mysterious entity, which we don't know who he is or she is. <laughs> or they were. Or they were, exactly. Or maybe you were part of them. Uh, but it comes out. What was your reaction? So, as some of your audience may remember, Satoshi's white paper was first posted to a cryptographer's mailing list, which, in fact, was historically descended from a mailing list of the so-called cypherpunks. I see. I was a subscriber to the list. Now, I didn't read it all the way, every message every day, but Satoshi's paper led to a bunch of discussions on the list. Once the software was released in January 2009, people were talking not only about the technical aspects of how it worked, but the code. Why don't you add this feature or that feature, and so on. So somebody, I don't remember who, first said, hey, Stuart, have you looked at this paper? Um, they're using your work. And I read the paper. I was still working as a professional cryptographer, <laughs> several jobs down the line from Belcor, and I saw that Satoshi was using our time-stamping technique, and in fact, used the words time-stamping server right. in the paper. Uh, Satoshi was using it in exactly the way we intended, to ensure the integrity of the financial transactions in this miraculous system that he devised. It was, of course, pretty impressive and transformational. Did you feel it was going to be transformational immediately? I read it quickly when a colleague said, oh, you should look at this. I said, huh, nice use of our old time-stepping stuff. Um, it could take off. The um, well-known in the States science journalist, John Markoff, he used to cover Silicon Valley for the New York Times, the high-tech world in general. He wrote an article in the New York Times about our technology, an article that appeared in 92 or thereabouts, when he would come to the labs and they'd show off new stuff. And maybe two or three years after Satoshi's white paper got out and people were actually using Bitcoin, he and I became friends and he, he asked me what I thought of the paper. And I looked, I read it more carefully and said, I don't see any way to break this. This looks pretty strong. I'll help you talk about it in an article. And at that point, actual use of Bitcoin was mostly shady transactions. And I remember an exchange of messages with him about, we'll see what happens. When, and he said, ah, maybe I won't write about it this summer. And he probably regrets that. <laughs> but um, my opinion there was this could work, might not. It's whether a business is successful is not a matter of mathematical certainty Correct. to be. It's a, it's a human process politics, economics, social forces, and so on. Absolutely. 
I mean, I think that's just a spot on point, Stuart. And I think sometimes we get carried away by tech's potential, but we don't realize tech itself is not a panacea. It has to be seen within the context of right. the society we live in. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a truism of technical folks. <laughs> Indeed. So here we are in 2022, this incredibly large festival, a lot of applications around blockchains, uh, climate change-related work. You know, people think that, you know, some of the solutions can come through by using blockchain-based verification and reporting. The world of people who find blockchain full of potential, I think, is bigger than the world of people who find cryptocurrencies full of potential. Would you agree I, to that? Uh, yeah, yes, I'm, I'm fully in agreement with that sentiment. When people ask uh, Scott and me about our timestamping work, and they said, did you imagine backing up the integrity of a financial system? We said, yeah, yes, and we really meant we aimed to be able to handle all the world's records. And we worried about scalability. Remember, the experimental code was first running in 91 and still makes sense now. Absolutely. But the world of blockchain-based applications, what fascinates you these days? I mean, if you look at this you know, whole spectrum of various use cases that we have beyond cryptocurrencies, where do you think is the, the biggest transformational potential? That's hard to say. The potential is everywhere. The execution, whether successful taking you know, ideas to practice, depends on execution. When there's software involved, you need proper auditing of the software, proper security procedures for the software, but you need users excited about it. That's a matter of exciting people's enthusiasm. So, Stuart, I guess where I'm coming from is beyond the issue of ensuring the sanctity of records, which I suppose is the base motivation for your original paper. Today, it seems to me that in some cases, I mean, with all due respect to all the tech entrepreneurs out in the world, sometimes we have solutions looking for problems. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, I felt sort of compelled to ask you which problems in the sort of smaller subset, just beyond the issue of just timestamping documents, right. do you find fascinating that you think there is genuine potential for being solved through the blockchain-based system? So in many places in the third world, property records and so on are tampered with. Absolutely. Um, not on record. And if a powerful person wants to throw you off a small piece of property you have at a certain location in town, they can. At least some first world countries where there are laws and institutions and regulations in place to make that harder, you might be more secure in your property. There's a Nobel Prize winning economist from Chile who wrote more than 20 years ago about the potential for the world's economy if bringing all the property records in the third world into the regime of well-respected law. I think Fernando de Soto. That's it. That's it, right, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I fully concur. Um, I'll share with you one example. In fact, the proponent of the solution that I'm going to talk to you about now is here in this festival, uh, Deputy Governor of Central Bank of Cambodia, Dr. Sarai Chea. Very, very fascinating uh, solution for small and medium-sized enterprises to do settlement uh, when they were having a hard time getting included in the formal banking system. Uh, so here's one area, to your point, the leapfrogging from the third world state to right. advanced, cutting-edge well, solution. Well, I mean, and we see uh, many countries in the third world where wired phone lines are only in the big cities. That's right. Um, 
But now everybody's walking around with a cell phone. You and I here in Singapore are getting in touch with each other and navigating our way through this extravaganza with these fancy computers. But there are poor people in the third world and they're all carrying cell phones too. That's a big change since 1991. Makes a bigger difference to the world than, than blockchain will for a little while. Absolutely. Stuart, cryptography is computationally intensive. And things that are computationally intensive require a lot of energy. And in the case of Bitcoin, we're seeing that the computational demands are creating this backlash among the environmentally conscious part of the society saying that, you know, the brown aspect of Bitcoin is terrible for climate change. Right. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? The use of energy for Bitcoin security is a waste of energy. It's still small. If you're worried about the planet, as you should be, the scale of energy now consumed by Bitcoin is not that large. I warmed the planet by flying here from New York. Things like the airline industry and, well, automobile industry, changing those will make a much bigger difference to the climate. But of course, as you said, the high-tech people worry about their own high-tech stuff. Everybody knows about their own dirty laundry, not necessarily about problems elsewhere. But of course, what's now known as Nakamoto consensus, which is the use of wastefully energy-intensive computation in order to ensure the integrity of the records, is not the only consensus mechanism in use. And there are a bunch of competing blockchain systems that do not use the proof-of-work consensus as in Bitcoin. But, in fact, there are ways to parallelize the computation that use much less energy than Bitcoin while still using proof-of-work. And it's yet to be seen what actually turns into the foundation of integrity of records for different applications. For both Scott and me, our impulse is to grab a metaphor from somewhere completely else. Let a thousand blockchains bloom. Okay, so here's a hard question for you. Okay. <laughs> um, some people would argue that decentralization is basically the dream of libertarians. That they don't believe in central authority and the world revolves around central authorities, central banks and regulators and governments and so on. That a challenge to that centralization is almost like a civilizational challenge. That we are pushing ourselves toward a lawless world that has no borders, that has no cross-border sort of you know, integrity of regulation if we allow decentralized blockchains to proliferate for a very wide range of use cases. So in fact, the adoption of a technical mechanism is a human process. So Scott and I solve the problem of ensuring the integrity of a string of bits. A time-stamped email message about meeting for lunch tomorrow can be checked that exactly this string of bits existed in the world at the time stated. But that is not an assurance that the English language meaning actually happened anywhere. You and I may have uh, purposely sent this message while we were at the other end of the planet doing some nefarious deeds. The connection between bits and atoms, as I sometimes phrase it, is not assured. For the blockchain world, theoretical computer scientists and mathematicians first use this phrase, oracles. If you have a smart contract 
that depends on a financial index. The financial index is outside the particular blockchain where the parties may be recording their transactions. And if they need a way of ensuring that the particular financial index is exactly this number at this time. The way of doing the message is delivered by what's called an oracle. Some oracles are more trustworthy than others. I think that's such a well, nice way of putting it. I was going to follow up to you about, you know, is a blockchain fraud proof? But you've already answered that question. So, yeah, I, I appreciate your making that point. You also talked about, just now, issues related to tokens, so like non-fungible tokens, which were all the rage about a year and a half ago. Yes. Uh, I think there are quite a few setups here as well on NFTs related to art, related to sports memorabilia, and perhaps also related to carbon capture and carbon credit and so on. Right. What's your thought on the whole NFT movement? I'm happy to see it. So let's take a step back. What is an NFT? Well, first, it's a horrendous acronym <laughs> for, for the uh, practice. It's too late for that uh, it, it's now. Too, yeah. it's, it's too late, <laughs> yes. That train has left the station. But what is an NFT? An NFT is essentially a time-stamped assertion of ownership. That's right. Of something. If that something is a string of bits, then it's easier to check it and so on than if that assertion of ownership is of a physical object. For example... The complex physical phenomenon that might be captured by the carbon offset I might purchase for my plane trip here is more difficult. You need trustworthy oracles in order to do that. Now, trustworthy oracles don't have to necessarily be central trusted authorities. The spirit of decentralization that excites lots of blockchain enthusiasts is about devising ways to decentralize things as much as possible. But the enthusiasts, the maximalists who say, well, code is law and we're going to change all the world's institutions by a week from tomorrow, that's ridiculous. Yeah, so I think in behavioral economics, we use the term uh, incentive compatibility, that you know, get certain incentives aligned so you don't have to have a centralized authority where mm -hmm. your oracles or any other sort of you know, entity can then start doing the verification right. attestation. This is um, very sort of close to our heart as well in my bank. You know, we are looking at sort of you know, NFT-based solutions around um, carbon credit, uh, setting up carbon exchanges where you have these verifiable pieces of code that allows you to know the sanctity of the place that you're buying the carbon credit from. And, and we are pretty excited about that. Stuart, what are you working on these days? What's keeping you busy? I'm a part-time consultant in cryptography, mostly blockchain projects, but... My doctoral thesis was, in fact, in a different area that was the bleeding edge of some small group of interested researchers back then. I finished my degree in 87. But the area of research I'm about to name is now all over the place. Lots of people here have heard of it and are getting excited about it. Zero-knowledge proofs and multi-party computation. So I have advised some projects in that area, too. Could you expand on that concept, or is it too intricate a concept to expand on? I'm not sure if the listeners to a <laughs> financial podcast want to hear a five-minute explanation of a cryptographic construction, but I'm happy to do it if you 
if you if you. I personally am really fascinated to hear that. So please, I mean, I'm not going to get Stuart Haver on this podcast ever again. So sure. Well, be. how do you know? <laughs> That's true. That's true. I mean, I've had a, a wonderful couple of days in Singapore so far, and I'd be happy to come back. And I come but, to New York all the time too. So okay. Well, let's make an appointment. So, zero knowledge proof is a protocol for two parties, a prover and a verifier, whereby the prover can prove to the verifier that a certain assertion is true without giving away any information about why it's true. Now, for example, I could prove a mathematical statement to you by giving all the details. The way zero-knowledge proofs work, though, is that there's a back and forth, some random choices, especially by the challenger, the the verifier, to try and catch the prover cheating. And a properly constructed zero-knowledge proof has the property that at the end of the procedure, the verifier knows with a very high certainty that the assertion is true, but literally has learned nothing about why it's true. Now, that's a paradoxical-seeming short list of requirements. In fact, how to do that was uh, first shown at a a, uh, theoretical computer science meeting, I believe, in 85. I'm surprised you thought that this would not be of interest to people in the finance world, because finance is all about verification and and informational integrity. No, 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 no. I, I misspoke when I said people wouldn't be interested in it. But as one of the researchers writing early papers... Of course we spoke. I have a bunch of papers from that time which include paragraphs about how important this would be for real-world uses. But in fact, the procedures were hard to carry out in practice, and there was very little running code. About 15 years ago, a bunch of applied cryptography researchers sort of all, I mean, this was floating around in, in the air, and several places around the world at about the same time, teams decided to take this old research and try and do it in practice. And now there are companies that actually offer multi-party computation services using zero-knowledge proofs. If I look out into the exhibition hall, right now I don't see a company name that I know to be doing that, but I'm, I'm sure I wouldn't have to get very far in order to find, find one. Absolutely fascinating. Okay, final question, and if it's a dumb question, we'll take it out of the podcast. The question is as follows. Can quantum computing break the blockchain? That's not a dumb question. And the answer is yes and no. So we know quantum computing algorithms that if the quantum computer is big enough, can handle enough data, it's easy to break public key cryptography. The... RSA encryption, RSA signatures, elliptic curve signatures, and elliptic curve encryption can be broken. But that's been on the horizon coming very soon for decades. The quantum computation algorithm was presented at another theoretical computer science conference, this one in New Orleans at 94. We are much closer to seeing quantum computers, or so we're told. I'm, I'm not a physicist, but it's certainly prudent to plan for the demise of public key cryptographic systems of the kind we now use. For example, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology in the U.S., is running a competition for 
quantum safe or post-quantum wow. cryptography. And the intention there is deploy, well, standardize and then deploy a small handful of new algorithms for which we know no quantum attacks. That is in, in process, post-quantum, as they're called, algorithms uh, may be used. But coming back to blockchains, the important part of a blockchain, of course, it's my own part, is the integrity of the data. And that depends on the use of what are called cryptographic hash functions, one-way hash functions, which are a way of, as it were, computing a digital fingerprint for, for any, any record. So breaking a hash function means finding two different records that have the same fingerprint. And there are quantum algorithms that speed up the search for what we call colliding documents, that mm-hmm. is pairs of documents that have the same fingerprint. But it, it's by no means an exponential speed up. So SHA-256, SHA-256, now in widespread use, standardized by the same institution this right. quite a while ago, is likely safe against quantum attacks. However, the blockchain systems as now deployed certainly use digital signatures. That is, if I send you a certain amount of Bitcoin, the way I do that is by writing down a transaction. My promise to send you 17 Bitcoin cents is uh, a transaction written down in a certain format, and I sign it. That is, I computer digital signature, as it's called. Again, it's a certificate separate from the string itself, like a timestamp certificate. It's a certificate that can only be computed by me, assuming my private signing key hasn't leaked and so on. The public key signatures in widespread use in most blockchain systems now would be subject to a quantum attack. And we will have to use quantum safe signatures. This is really cool, but I guess the bottom line is that the concepts that you worked on 32 years ago, I don't think they're in danger of going extinct anytime soon because you have thought through possible solutions. Scott and I were just lucky to be there first and had the elbow room, the research freedom to choose a problem to work on. Brilliant. Stuart Haber, thank you so much for your time and insights. This has been an honor. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Great. And your audience. Indeed. So i end by thanking our audience of this podcast. Uh, Kopi Time was produced in the Singapore Fintech Festival Hall 4. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. All episodes of Kopi Time are available on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify, as well as on YouTube. And for our research publications, webinars, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day. <laughs>